Well, good morning, fellowship. It's great to have you here. And uh, thank you, thank you for going through the obstacle course to get to church this morning. As you know, I have been on a uh, 60-day fast of negativity on Topeka Roads. And so I've, every time I go and I, I try to turn and I can't turn, and every time I hit, you know, kunk, 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 kunk on the roads, I go, won't it be wonderful when they're completed? That's how we go positive, right? I think the roads are going to be so luxurious someday. Someday. Um, but the city of Topeka did help us out. There was a point when we couldn't turn any direction, either on uh, 10th Street there or Wanamaker. And that was chaotic, and uh, our council people went to work for us, and, and we were able to change all the ones except the left-hand turn uh, heading north. So thank you for getting here. You arrived. There's a piece of cheese for everyone, because <laughs> we made it through the maze. Okay. Hey, we're starting a new series today. It's called Great Questions, this week and next week. And uh, there, there's great questions in the world right now, but there's also great questions in our minds that we want church to be a safe place for you to examine and find answers to your questions. We are unapologetic that Jesus Christ is the most important person and most historical event that's ever happened in, in humanity. Uh, but we also have a, a society that's questioning this, and we want this to be a safe place for you to ask questions. And we're planning this week to answer five key questions about the Word of God, and then next week we're going to be talking about some other questions about the way of God, how to follow Jesus and the Christian life. At times, I'm just preparing you, so everyone wake up and listen here for a second. At times, I'm going to be more like a lecture today but I don't want to be. But it's just the, the amount of material we're going to cover is going to require everyone for you to engage your mind. And I know some of you thought of the church or even coming here that you don't you check your mind at the door when you walk in. That is not the case. And we want to really look at that, especially those of you who are thinkers. We want you to be able to think and engage God with your mind. We're to love God with our heart, our soul, and our minds. And so we want to engage God with that. And it should be even though supernatural, it should be reasonable. And we're going to be looking at that today when it comes to God's word. Because here's the reality. Uh, a lot of us have Bibles. We have probably in the United States more Bibles per capita than any other country in the world. But we don't use them. We don't use them. I don't know if it just gives us comfort to have it in the house, put it over the fireplace. And yeah, I'm religious, so I'll put it up there. So I went southern. I went southern there. I'm sorry, we're in Kansas. But, but it's for some reason, the Bible gives us comfort, but the daily seeking after God and his word, we're not doing it. The church isn't doing that. Not just fellowship, the church in general. So if for some reason, we like someone to tell us the truth, and we kind of decide on that. Do, do I want to believe the truth? But the truth has been challenged, and it is being challenged. If you're in college or headed to college, you will have a class, sometimes in a secular environment, about the New Testament or the Old Testament that doesn't believe that it's reliable, that it was it invented by the church and forced on us 
that Jesus was just a good man and the church made him God. He wasn't God before that. And, and if you read like Dan Brown and Da Vinci Code, which makes for interesting entertainment, but, but they tend to teach the concept that, um, that in 300s, the church kind of developed and wrote their own scriptures and forced it on us. And I'm just going to say, no, we, we've got to be skeptical of that as they might be skeptical of the word. It just needs to be able to stand. It needs to be reasonable as we look at that. And uh, the, the scriptures here is that I just want to tell you is if you feel threatened that the word is being challenged, I just want to tell you it's always been threatened. It's always been challenged. Ever since the beginning, the word has been challenged. Let's go to Genesis. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God creates this world, and he has this pattern of the value of his word and the power and the authority of his word. Because over and over through the creation account, you say, and it says, and God said, first thing, let there be light. And what happened? And there was light. That's something. The, the Latin term for it is ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, God created something. Think about that. Totally different than how we create things. I need raw materials. And so do you. You, may need, you need something to make something else. And we're creative and we're blessed with ingenuity. And God gave us great minds to discover and explore and invent and create. But whatever we, we create, whatever, whatever we create We've, we're actually recreating, but God didn't need that. God needed nothing, and nothing obeyed his word to become something. Do you see that? So he's the source and sustainer of everything. Over and over throughout the scriptures, uh, in the creation account, and God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good. He gives a divine commentary. It was good. It was good. It was good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, something different happens. And it's related to his word. God said to Adam and Eve as he placed them in the garden. And it was an awesome garden. Awesome garden. And by the way, God said, you can eat of any of these trees except that one. Why did God restrict one? We don't like anyone saying anything against one thing. But, but God said, don't eat out of this one because he wanted us to worship him, to choose to obey him every day. And that one tree was that object of, uh, object that, that God would use to, to have us willingly obey him. Uh, but that tree, he said, don't eat of that tree. And Genesis chapter 3 is the challenge to God's word. Satan asked through the serpent, the woman, he says this. All right. Okay. So can we move that manually? Hello, help me, people. (laughs) Don't leave me stranded today. There it is. Voila. And I said, and it appeared. (laughs) See how that works? Okay, there's someone actually back there with an index finger doing this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Satan says, did God actually say? Remember all these times God said, God said, God said. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. I mean, look at how that reforms God's word. What it does, it reforms is like, God's so restrictive. Did he really say he can't eat out of any tree? I mean, instead of seeing the hundreds of other trees, Satan focused on the one tree. And then in verse, take a look at verse four. The woman says, 
Oh, it works. Okay. Genesis 3 verse 4, the woman said, yeah, God said, if we eat of this tree, we will surely die. And there's the challenge to the word. Satan says, you shall not surely die. So folks, let's not be surprised. The word has always been challenged and it will always be challenged until Jesus Christ returns and makes all wrongs right and confronts error and things that are wrong with what's right in his righteousness. It's, it's just a matter of life in a broken world with people who want to live they want, the way they want to live. But we as followers of Jesus are called. We're called like First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared. We're called to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this, look what it says there, with gentleness and respect. Those are lost words in our political spectrum today. Those are lost words when we disagree. We don't like to disagree with gentleness and respect. I've seen, just going to be open here, I've seen your Facebook posts. I've seen your political Facebook posts. I've seen it whenever there's an issue in which our world disagrees. And you are nasty, some of you. Some of you are really nasty. And we've got to stop. We've got to stop or we've got to go and just delete that post. Because it's not with gentleness and respect. Even on the most important issue of the word of God, we need to be able to speak with gentleness and respect and make a defense. And then secondly, Timothy is told this by Paul. He said, from childhood, you've been acquainted, to be acquainted with the sacred writings, which before the New Testament scriptures were formed there, he had the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, which, which were able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, no matter how rational we can be or reasonable we can be, it still requires faith. We need faith to take God at his word and to follow him. By the way, that's a definition for faith. Faith is taking God at his word, not just saying it's true, but acting on it and obeying him and following him. This is why it's important. Because I used to think that if people just knew the truth, they would believe the truth. That is not true. Is that true? How many of you know that it's 70 miles per hour on Highway 70 here? How many of you know that? You do now. Everybody knows. How many of you drive 70? He goes, I saw a lot of nudging going on right now. (laughs) You go, it depends, right? Yeah, it depends. Because it depends if I want to follow God. Do I agree with it right off the bat? Does it confront my life with anything? If I have to stop living with that person and follow Jesus, I mean, no way. God wants me to be happy. We make situational ethics based on what we want to believe. And the reality of that is we believe what we want to believe And it's much more of an issue of a heart. We're going to end with your heart. But right now, I want to talk to you about the reliability of the scriptures, the word of God. Can we trust the scriptures? Now, this is a broad topic, which I have 18, almost 19 minutes and counting to talk to you about this. So I am not going to be able to go the full spectrum of the reliability of the word of God, but I'm going to focus on one event. And, I'm, and this one event, if we can have some reasonable assurance that this is reliable, the account is reliable, and that faith, people can take the step of faith based on the evidence that we have from the word then we can work our way backwards. 
Now, I'm going to tell you, in our weekly email for our church, I'm going to send you some more options of resources that I used in preparation for this time. And you can buy those books or read those books, and they're going to go much more detailed, with much more precision, which much, much more scholarly work than I'm going to give you right now. But it exists, and if you're thoughtful and you're a seeker, you will find the reality in that material. Can we trust the scriptures starts with this question. The greatest historical event in humanity. What was it? I'm going to just put it out there. The Bible is very clear on it. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, whoop, there we go. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the greatest event in human history. If you look at the scriptures, that's what it shouts. That Jesus Christ lived, he died, And he rose again. Look at how Paul defends it in 1 Corinthians, verse 15. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, my number one priority to you in church in Corinth is this. And I received it. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was, that he raised, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But then he goes more scientific here. He said, and then he appeared of the risen savior appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the rest of the 12. And then he appeared to over 500 people in Jerusalem, the very place where he was crucified and died. He appeared physically. People saw him. People touched him. It's the number one event in human history. And therefore, everything in the Christian faith hinges on this reality. Everything. Look at Paul just focusing in more on 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 to 14. He said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And look at this, and your faith is in vain. In other words, it makes an incredible claim that Jesus is God in the flesh. He lived, he died, and he rose again for us. If we don't believe that he rose again for us, there's no resurrection then we are believing in vain. We're just good moral people, hopefully, which that's not even a reality. We fall short of our own expectations for ourselves. And so the reality that the scriptures come to is is that this, the defense of the word is upheld by the reality of the resurrection. And so what I'd like to do is spend our time talking about the reality of, of the biblical account of the resurrection. Did it happen? Is it reasonable to believe that this event happened and that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you can put, you put your faith and trust in him? Look at what Paul says. If, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. I think this is a really crucial passage because a lot of people come to Jesus and say, Jesus, make all my wildest dreams come true. Jesus, help me have this person like me so I can be married and be happy ever after. Others of us go, Jesus, help me get a job. Help me get a raise. Because we want life the way we want it. We want Jesus to serve us. We don't want to serve Jesus. And, and a lot of people follow Jesus for what they can get from him, not to what they can give to him, which is your whole life, is what we're called into. And so if we're just trusting Jesus because he's a moral man and we want to be moral people, if people were dying and people today are dying for the truth about Jesus. And we're to be pitied if that happens to us and he really didn't rise from the dead. 
So scriptures are clear on that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at the account of the resurrection. And I want to talk to you about five words related to the the reliability of the scriptures. And the first one is this, translations. The translations that we have of the Bible, can we trust them? And here's the first question. How can we know that the Bible is properly translated into what we now have? The answer to that. Is everyone with me? Hello? Good. Going to have some interaction today. Was the Bible properly translated? Because in the Old Testament, Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was originally written in Greek. How do we know that they were translated in the right way? And how do we know that they weren't just made up? Well, the Bible has over 27,000, write that number down, 27,000 manuscripts before the printing press was invented. Handwritten copies of copies. And they're valuable and reliable in their integrity. There were people who lived their lives to translate the scriptures. And they were meticulous not to change them. The characters were counted on each line as a scribe wrote them on leather or vellum or other things. But no one had scratch paper in that day. They wrote on valuable items that were preserved and kept, and it kept them reliable. This is a passage in Greek out of Mark 10, verse 50. This is a point in Jesus' ministry where he goes to Jericho and he sees a man who is blind, and the man who is blind named Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus... And he calls out to Jesus, and everyone goes, would you be quiet? And he goes, no. And Jesus called him to come to him. This is Greek. Can anyone read that? Yeah, it looks like Greek to me, right? (laughs) But this is what the translation of the English Standard Version says of that passage. It says, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Here's an NASB, New American Standard Bible Version. Throwing his cloak aside... He jumped up and came to Jesus. Says it a little differently, right? If you're NIV, it says throwing his cloak aside. He jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. How many of you old school KJVers? Amen. Praise the Lord. Here you go. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. That just preaches, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, it's easy and translations have divided the church for a while. You may have come from a church that divided over a translation. I've had people leave this church because they didn't like the translation we used. And we can all hide behind the, mine is a word-for-word translation. Oh, really? That's the second word, readability. When you try to take Greek and cram it into English, you lose something. You lose something. There's different orders. And so if we were to take word-for-word translation of the original Greek, this is what it would say. Look at the bottom part. The, but he throwing off the cloak his, he jumped up, he came to the Jesus. (laughs) It doesn't read. It doesn't read. So you have the content of what must be understood in your language. And that's why many scholars have gathered together and they've looked at the manuscripts and they've made decisions that have been consistent. There have been variances, no doubt. 
There have been variances, but they have not been over key areas. Some of you may see a variance, like the end of Mark ends abruptly, and then there's usually on your translation in Mark chapter 16, beginning with verse, uh, verses 9 through 20, I think it is, there's a line that goes across and says, the earliest manuscripts do not contain this. What do you do with that? Well, the scholars, as, they, as they've looked at that, say, well, we're not going to give that the power that we give the rest of that that's supported by the other manuscripts. So there's a line across your Bible and says the earliest manuscripts don't do this. So if you're going to believe that, it needs to be supported by the rest of Scripture. There's another place in John, just about five passages in John uh, 7.53 through, 7.53 through 8.11. Most variances are on that. And so you hold them a little lighter. But those are the only places. Those are the only places where there's variances like that. Translation. Transmission. Here's the other one. Without, I get this a lot. Without the original documents of the Bible, how can we be sure that it's reliable? Well, there's a grid that has been used for biblical authenticity. And uh, when people spoke for Jesus in the early church, they had to be, they had to be eyewitnesses. First word is eyewitnesses there. So if someone didn't see the risen Savior of Jesus, they couldn't speak for him. So if someone said, my Aunt Marge had a best friend whose uncle's cousin saw Jesus, they would go, sorry, you can't speak for Jesus. Why? You didn't see him with your own eyes. And the whole New Testament witness was based on just that. Witnesses of the risen Savior, Jesus. The other thing was age. How old is the document? Do you realize we have a portion of John that was found in a manuscript written on vellum from the year 147 A.D.? But even more so on that, the Old Testament scriptures uh, were really validated by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, let's talk about that real quick. The Dead Sea Scrolls was a a community of scribes, Jewish scribes, at the time of Jesus. And they lived out in the wilderness in an area called Qumran, which is just to the north of the Dead Sea. And it's up in these cliffs and it's, they, they hid and they translated the Old Testament scriptures and they hid them in caves because Rome was coming and was going to destroy everything. So they hid them in caves. So 1947, 1940 years pass and this Bedouin shepherd boy is looking for his lost sheep and he takes a rock and he throws it into the cave and instead of meh, he hears crash. He goes into the cave and he finds the greatest archaeological find in our time frame. Anyone in archaeology would tell you that Dead Sea Scrolls' greatest discovery in our time. Because it was major portions of the Old Testament scriptures that were translated. And here's why it's significant. Because before the Dead Sea Scrolls' discovery, we had the Old Testament scriptures and manuscripts from the year 1030. 1,030. And roughly, the Dead Sea Scrolls took us back to the year 30. And they compared the two, what we have today with what they discovered, and they matched. They matched. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's awesome. So this Bedouin shepherd boy takes these things and he sells them for 98 bucks to an antiquities dealer. Bad decision. Because... There was just this, just a small portion of them were put on the market 
recently for $68 million. Yeah, yeah. bad investment, Bedouin shepherd boy. <laughs> bad investment. Um, but it wasn't just age, it was also alignment. Do the scriptures agree with the early manuscripts? Does it agree? And then, and then finally, was there acceptance? Did the church accept this? We have an acceptance of the person and the work of Jesus dating back to that was formed and proclaimed and worshipped, used in worship, a hymn about Jesus that traces back within 27 years of his resurrection. And it's formed. We have it in our scriptures today. Yeah, so it wasn't the church through a political movement saying, we're going to make Jesus God. It was Jesus who showed himself as God and the church accepted that. That's why Paul would say, what I, what I received, I also gave to you. Because he accepted the person and the work of Christ. Is the Bible historically accurate? And that's a great question. Because here's the reality. The Babylonians, ancient Babylonians, have their stories of the creation of the world and supernatural events. The Egyptians have their myths. The Romans had their myths and fables and the gods warring with each other. What makes the Bible different? And the answer to that is how it's presented. How it's presented. If I'm going to tell you a fable, I usually start out with once upon a time, right? But if I tell you history... I'm going to speak like a historian. Let me give you a witness. First witness, Luke. Look at how he starts out his account in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That's historian talk. That's not, you know, grandmother goose telling you a story. This is history. And he presents it. As history. Secondly, look at John 1 1. How many of you have a scientific mind? You like to see it before you believe it. We tend to do that. He writes this that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. So catch this. We, we heard of him, we saw him, we touched him. Jesus resurrected from the dead. It was always brought in as history. Not a fable. So when I tour the Holy Lands, we go to real places. Real places mentioned in the scriptures. Several years ago, they had not discovered the town of Magdal yet. So you may have heard of Mary Magdalene. Okay? Fifteen years ago, they were building a hotel along the Sea of Galilee. And they hit something. It was the city of Magdal, and it was covered over in mud, and they unearthed the mud, and they had a synagogue dated back to the time of Christ that Jesus probably taught in the synagogues. That's where he taught as he had his ministry around Galilee. There's also places that Jesus mentioned doing a miracle, like at the Pool of Siloam. I sat on those steps three weeks ago in Jerusalem. And I preached to our group that was there about, about Jesus being our healer because he healed a man born blind there. There's also places uh, like at the southern entrance to the Temple Mount uh, where the steps are, re- are, some of them are original, but others have been recreated to, to match the uh, other ones that are the ruins that are on the side to show you this, where Peter preached to 3,000 people. 20 years, this was not, 20 years ago, this was not unearthed yet. So skeptics would say, how could Peter baptize 3,000 people in a day? There's no way anyone, water was so scarce 
And he baptized 3,000 people. Well, they unearthed no less than 50 ceremonial baths where people dunked themselves in and came out and then went to worship at this very place. Where before the discovery, everyone was asking questions. After the discoveries, I mean, you see the ceremonial baths. It could happen. It's reasonable that it could happen there. There's real people. There's not just real places, but there's people mentioned in the scriptures that you can verify from the historical account. Guy by the name of Pontius Pilate who tried Jesus for his crucifixion. They found a Caesarea by the sea. They unearthed, they took this stone and they flipped it over and found dedicated to Pontius Pilate. Found his name. There's also Herod the Great. There's also Caesar Augustus. The story of Jesus mentions real people, historical people, that if you want to look up and find, you'll find them. They're not made up people. They're real people. And therefore, we can say with reasonable, with a reasonable, that step of faith then is reasonable because we have the truth of real places with real people. How do we know the events in the Bible really happened? And that's why I want to just focus on that resurrection of Jesus and go back to that account because on resurrection morning, we celebrated at Easter, the angel said to the women who were at the tomb, he is not here for he has risen as he said, come see this place where he lay, then go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. So we're always called to look at the evidence, to make a decision, and then tell others about the risen Savior of Jesus. So there's three things that really push the validity of the resurrection. The first thing is this, an empty tomb. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. The disciples had to be taught that. They were not expecting a bodily resurrection of Jesus. It was totally new, that whole concept of a resurrection. It's not something the church made up or they made up. That's why they didn't believe in Jesus before it, and they struggled to believe him after. He literally had to appear and said, look at me, touch, touch Thomas, down here and here. Okay, now stop doubting and believe. The empty tomb. Skeptics have said, oh, they went to the wrong tomb. But the scriptures are real clear. It was a tomb in which nobody had yet been laid. And it was given by a wealthy man. For 150 years, the Jews would would bury like this. They'd have an inner chamber. Sorry, I'm getting into the details here. We we go PG-13 here, okay? The body is laid on a stone. It's wrapped with ointments. And people leave the grave And it rots. And in a year, they gather up the bones and they put them in a bone box. And it's the size of their femur. Your femur right here is the largest, the longest bone in your body. And so they'd build that box out of stone and they'd place your bones in it and they'd put it in an upper chamber. So it's important that Jesus would not be in a tomb that other people were in. It was a new tomb. We went to a tomb like this. In Jerusalem to celebrate the resurrection. And that's how it was built. Into the rock. But it took a lot of work. And so it had to be someone who was wealthy to give that. Typically someone crucified by the Romans. Would be thrown into a mass grave. Something unique had to happen with Jesus. 
And that's what happened with Joseph of Arimathea putting him in a tomb. But then there's also the resurrected body of Jesus. Skeptics have questioned that. Maybe he was in a coma when he was taken off the cross. He was placed in the tomb. Three days later, he wakes up and he appears all healthy. And I would simply say, you don't know Roman crucifixion. They didn't mess around. They beat the body. They nailed the body. And they made sure the body was dead. They just did it. They just kept poking it until it died. Okay, so it's not, it's not going to be something that, that was, oh, they were soft-handed on Jesus. No, they made sure there was people's jobs on the line that whoever they crucified died. Jesus died, according to the scriptures. And then the, the faith of those who saw the resurrected Jesus, they had a life-altering faith. In other words, Peter denied Jesus before the death and resurrection, after, full in, full on, willing to die for Jesus. He was crucified upside down. They were going to crucify him like Jesus, but he said, I will not die like my Savior. They crucified him upside down. This is person after person who lived for Jesus and died for Jesus. And so trust. Can we trust it? What is the main goal of the scriptures? Now, I know, I know that we could um, start here with this question. But I was intentional. I wanted to show you that you don't check your mind at the door of biblical reliability. You can really, it holds up to scrutiny. Remember, 27,000 manuscripts before the printing press that we have. What's the main goal of the scriptures? Let me quote John. John chapter 20, second to the last chapter of John's account of Jesus. He writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Can I just tell you that? What it comes down to, it's not, the first question is not, is the word reliable? The first question is, what do you think about Jesus? Because here's what I've learned. If you don't like me and you don't trust me, you think the worst of me and you change my words. We do that when we're upset with someone. When we're offended by someone, we fill in the lines and we always think the worst and we believe the worst about them. When you trust Jesus, you take his word and you accept it. And so what it comes down to is ultimately this scriptures that we have is the main goal is Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again for you. These are written so that you would believe in him. You would stop trying and start trusting. You would stop trying to work your way to God and start believing in him as the way, the truth, and the life. And that you would live life in his name. That you would live more like Jesus. And that's what it comes down to. So, Where are you with Jesus? Ultimately, this word is written so that you would put your faith and trust in him. Now, some of you have come here from a tradition that is working your way to God, whether it's a a background within Christianity or outside of Christianity that just thinks I can work my way to God, that I'm not as bad as that person. God will, I'll do my part. God will do his part. And what we come down to, if that were true, Jesus would have never had to come, live perfectly for you, die on a cross, and rise again on the third day. 
But since we cannot be good enough, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again for us. Trust his work for you. Put your faith and trust in him. Would you bow your heads? I'm just going to ask you, if you'd like to respond to Jesus, would you do so right now? Would you simply pray and reach out to God and say, God, I get it. Jesus lived for me. He died for me. He rose again for me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. I trust in you. I turn from my sin, my own way, my own rebellion of wanting to live life on my own terms, and I trust and follow you. Whatever that's going to look like, I pray that I would trust you and follow you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for everyone in this room. I thank you for the reliability of your word, which does stand up against the skepticism of this world and even of our own hearts and speaks to us the truth. You would never lie to us. You always tell us the truth because you love us and you want your best for us. Thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.